Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome, welcome. We're diving into a new study in 1 Peter, and I am really excited to jump into this with you. I'm actually going to be studying this with my church, a small group, and um, doing a personal devotional study on 1 Peter myself. So it just made sense uh, to, to dive into this with you guys as well. Looking forward to it. I just wanted to actually give a quick shout out to the various other people that who are not connected with our school at Rockford Christian who are listening to this podcast. So I've actually noticed in Anchor that countries represented include, we've got Canada, Germany, Finland, South Africa, Australia, Russia, Norway, Colombia, Rwanda, Ireland, Singapore, Turkey, New Zealand, Vietnam, India, the United Kingdom, Greece, and the Netherlands. Got people listening all over the, the world to this podcast. So that's super cool. So if you're from one of those countries or from another different country than one listed, welcome. Hopefully this study in First Peter could be profitable and helpful for you as well. So for the teachers who are listening, I'm excited for this study, and I'll be interacting with you guys through Google Classroom. So we're going to dive into uh, an ancient letter, and we want to think about how we should use this ancient letter, how we should read it. And it, it actually made me think of that principal on YouTube who talked about emails and the proper use of the reply all button, and I found that so hilarious. I forget the guy's name. Um, maybe some of you can put it in the in the uh, the stream for us to find the video. <laughs> but he, I remember him saying something like, "Only click reply all if you're talking about the goodie table in the teachers' lounge. Uh, other than that, just reply to the person you want to talk to." So that's it's kind of an illustration for what I want to get at here in this lesson. How should I think about these letters? What are they? And, and how should we read them? How should we use them in a sense? And so how do we reply in a way to these letters? So what were they? Let me give you a definition for these letters that are in the New Testament. They were authoritative messages from the apostles directed by God's spirit, right? To first century Christian communities or individuals who were trying to figure out how to live out the truth of the gospel of how Jesus had brought the kingdom and how he had died and rose again and had become king and what that meant for their relationships with each other, with those outside the Christian community, for how they related to the government that was over them. That'll actually be a big deal uh, within First Peter because he's going to be addressing those who have been exiled um, by the government. So that's something that we will engage in. I look forward to talking about that with you guys. As you know, I like to think about Bible study with the four contexts. And these four contexts, readers, context, historical context, literary context, and Bible context, I like to all relate to going on a trip. So it's Christmas time. We would like to go to a warm place. And so we can imagine that right now. But let's 
use this illustration as a way to think about how we should look at 1 Peter. So first off, I want to think about the reader's context. And this is kind of like packing our bags. We all have to pack our bags before we go on our trip. And before we read 1 Peter, our bags are packed. And what I mean by that is we all have ideas, presuppositions that we bring to the journey of reading any book of the Bible, including 1 Peter. We have certain expectations or ideas right before we jump in. We have certain approaches that we're going to take. So I think the, the letters tend to be maybe the most popular for Christians today. And I think that might be because they feel the most accessible. You know, there's a lot of direct commands. And of course, a lot of references to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. So I get it. So we have this comfortability. And that comfortability can make us feel like everything is directly being written to us. And I want to hesitate with that. Um, the, the truths are universal, but the applications of those truths are culturally bound. And I want to be thoughtful to how we apply those truths in our time and our culture as well. Um, People tend to have uh, a tweet approach to reading the New Testament letters. They read a, a section here, a verse here. Uh, for example, Philippians 4.13 is a very famous verse for, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we want to think uh, about zooming out and looking at the surrounding context and look at those verses before it, which Paul further defines what it means when he says he can do all this through Christ who strengthens him. What is this? I mean, just look at the verses, two, three verses before it. In other words, what should our approach be? We should read the whole letter. Just start at the beginning, read the whole thing. And I would encourage you, read 1 Peter a bunch of times this semester. It takes 15 minutes to read 1 Peter, and it's it's an amazing little book. So, Read it from beginning to end. Of course, our study will be from beginning to end. So that's reader's context. What about historical context? Historical context is like the passport. So if you're going to go on a trip, you pack your bags, you need your passport, which is going to get you entrance into that country. And you and I need uh, a passport into the world of the Bible as well. And so looking at the historical context is always important. And I'll be talking about that as we go through our study. Duvall and Hayes in their book, Journey into God's Word, they say the letters of the New Testament offer a window into the struggles and victories of the early church. There were 27 books in the New Testament, and 21 of them are letters. Uh, and 22 if you count Revelation. So they're a really big deal. They were written 15 to 25 years after the events of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, the Gospels were written 30 plus. So that's always a surprising comment. I think what is most important is to say that they were occasional in nature. That means a specific setting or reason for the letter. They're not written to be systematic theologies. A lot of people approach Romans that way, and they view Romans like a list of certain theological truths. 
But Romans was written for a specific reason. The theology presented is for a specific purpose by that author for that community. I have an extended quote I want to read to you guys from um, Fee and Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. So here we go. Above all else, New Testament letters are occasional in nature, and that must be taken seriously. This means that they were occasioned or called forth by some special circumstance, either from the reader's side or the author's. Almost all the New Testament letters were occasioned from the reader's side. Philemon and perhaps James and Romans are exceptions. Usually the occasion was some kind of behavior that needed correcting or doctrinal error that needed to be set, it, set right or a misunderstanding that needed further light. Most of our problems in interpreting epistles are due to this fact of their being occasional. We have the answers, but we don't always know what the questions or problems were, or even if there was a problem. Colossians, uh, sorry, I'm chiming in here. Colossians is one of those where we're not sure if there was a specific problem. Okay, back to the quote. It is much like listening to one end of a telephone conversation and trying to figure out who is on the other end and what the unseen party is saying. Yet in many cases, it's especially important for us to try to hear the other end so we know what our passage is a response to. Fee and Stewart go on to say one further point. The occasional nature of the epistles also means that they are, first of all, not theological treatises, nor are they summaries of Paul's or Peter's theology. There is theology implied, but it's always task theology, theology being written for or brought to bear on the task at hand. This is true even of Romans, which is a fuller and more systematic statement of Paul's theology than one finds elsewhere. But it is only some of his theology. In this case, it is theology born out of his special task as apostle to the Gentiles. It is his special struggle for Jew and Gentile to become one people of God, based on grace alone and apart from the law that causes the discussion to take the special form it does in Romans, and that causes justification to be used there as the primary metaphor for salvation. Again, that was Fee and Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, page 58. It's an amazing resource, guys, if you want to look into that. They also have a resource called How to Read the Bible Book by Book, which is really good as well. So what does this mean for us in terms of how we should read the letters? I think I want to recognize they're not written to us, so we need to be careful. And we we can't hit the reply all button and assume in a way that this is for everyone. It, it wasn't. There was a specific group or individual in mind. There's wisdom for us to find and apply, but we need to be careful. Two more. The third one is literary context. And literary context, I liken to a tour guidebook. Do you remember? So once you arrive in the country you're visiting, you need help getting around, seeing the sights, learning how to talk to the people who are there. So that's kind of like literary context, which is about how to read the literature. What are the rules for this kind of literature? And the letters, what are they? 
they are a series of logical statements put together uh, to persuade. It's prose discourse is what it is. So there's a, a structure that these letters follow. There's an opening, and the opening includes the name of the writer and the recipient. A greeting often follows with a prayer and a statement of thanksgiving. And the opening often contains the main themes the letters will address. You often get a clue, a hint, or maybe more than that, a thesis statement from the author. So we want to pay attention to that with First Peter. Then you have the body of the letter. And of course, this is going to present the key ideas the writer wants to address with their logical and theological support. You'll often notice that there's doctrine given, what is true, and then there's application given, what you should do. And so hopefully that is a helpful way to remember um, that, what is true and what you should do. Sometimes the first half of the letter is doctrine and the second half is application. Sometimes it's all mixed up in there. The third section of a letter is the closing, and often there's a benediction, a message to specific groups, and if an amanuensis, a scribe, was present, they will sign their name as well. I'll, I'll just make the point here that um, this was a normal form of communication. So yet again, you have God using known means of communication to create books of the Bible. So I think you've heard me say this before. The method that God uses to present his truth in God's word is not unique. It was just known common forms. The message, however, is unique. So a few comments we've made about the characteristics of New Testament letters. They were occasional, or you could say situational. There was specific issues going on that are being addressed. They're logical. There's logical arguments. They're arranged paragraph by paragraph, and they're meant to persuade in some way. They're theological. They are rooted in what happened on the cross. It's the foundation of everything in these letters. Because the cross happened, because the resurrection happened, because Jesus has become king, how should we respond? And then they're eschatological. The letters are all about how we should live in light, not just of what happened in the past with Jesus, but also what's going to happen in the future. He is returning. Our king is returning. And so how then should we live? Those are three contexts. We got one more. Bible context. Bible context is like the map on your vacation. It's trying to think about where am I in relation to other countries around me or with the Bible reading, other books of the Bible. How does 1 Peter fit within the redemptive flow from Genesis to Revelation? Again, Fee and Stewart in their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, they say most Jews in Jesus's day were eschatological in their thinking. That is, they thought that they lived at the very brink of time when God would step into history 
and bring an end to this age and usher in the age to come. And that needs to be on our minds as we read the New Testament letters. I think if you would have told them it would be 2,000 years and counting and Jesus had not returned yet, they would say, no way, you're, you're crazy. Um, but here we are. Again, another quote from How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Very early, beginning with Peter's sermon in Acts 3, the early Christians came to realize, though, that Jesus had not come to usher in the final end, but the beginning of the end, as it were. So the, the end had begun. The kingdom had come, but not come in full. I think you see the significance of this in Paul's statement in Colossians 1, verse 13. He has rescued us, Jesus, from, uh, sorry, God the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Something has happened because of Jesus and the cross that's true about us, but we're still waiting for Jesus to return. And we'll actually see that concept in 1 Peter. We're waiting for the day of Jesus's return. Uh, a couple other quotes I'd like to read. Uh, ben Witherington says this in Jesus, Paul, and the End of the World. He says, it seems that its primary function is not to establish any sort of eschatological timetable, but rather to inculcate a sort of moral earnestness in believers so that their eyes will remain fixed upon the goal, eagerly longing for the fulfillment of God's plan for human history. In other words, what he's talking about is references to Jesus's return to the day of the Lord Jesus in New Testament letters is meant not to produce fear, but to produce moral earnestness as we remain fixed and steady on our goal. The goal is not going to heaven, people. The goal is being ready for when heaven comes to earth. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So within the Bible context, we see these letters functioning within the redemptive story, that God's promises all throughout the Old Testament have become true and yes in Jesus. But the fulfillment of these promises in Jesus haven't come to full fruition. If we think about spring flowers, right? Uh, these spring flowers haven't come up yet, but they're, they're there. They're ready to come up and bloom. And that's where we're at in these New Testament letters. And really, that's where we're at as we wait for Jesus to return. And he is. He is going to return. And it may well be in our lifetime. And so my hope, my prayer, is that as we study First Peter, we'll be challenged to think about what does it mean for us? How should we live in light of the truths of the gospel that Jesus has become king? He has brought the kingdom. And we're in the kingdom now. What does kingdom living look like in a world that is opposed to the gospel? 
and my prayers that God will use this study to draw us to a deeper commitment to him, love for him, um, but also love for our neighbor as well.